Okay, we are in Joshua chapter 2. And last week we read part of it and we talked about uh, 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 Rahab the harlot and how then we gave examples of the genealogy of Jesus right through to David, how Rahab is the great-grandmother of David uh, and how every woman that's listed in the genealogy of Jesus, there's only a few, of, of, of only about five women in the genealogy, the rest is just listed the fathers. But of those five women, every one of them had some sort of sexual disorder in their life. And it shows God's special place and His special interest, particularly in those who struggle with sexual difficulties. He reaches out specifically. So there's this feeling sometimes of unworthiness, but God reaches out specifically and He changes hearts. So, start, so let's start reading in Joshua chapter 2 again. And, and uh, I, I thank Jasmine for getting us this map made and printed off at Kinko's because now we can really see the conquest of Jericho, uh, of uh, uh, Joshua as he came into the land. And in fact, a year and a half ago, or uh, uh, t- almost two years ago, Shireen and I were in Israel and we, we got a tour by, by a, a man who was in charge of the Israeli defense uh, planning for about 25 years. And he's retired now. And he also drew the lines, the demographic lines for the separation from, the, from Egypt and also from, the, from uh, the West Bank separation. So this man was just, just a, an amazing man when it came to maps. And we stood, we stood uh, on a mountain right about here. We stood on a mountain and we overlooked and we saw how Joshua came in through Jericho, AI, and then around. And then we, we got in a car, we got in a, in a small van, and we, we drove all the way around and followed this attack route. So, so I've walked, I've, I've driven this route, I didn't walk it, but I drove this route and, and you, could stand, you could stand on the mountain. So, so just so that you, you have a scale here, this is not as big as you think because this is, this is 20 miles. So you've got 20 miles here. So, you know, if, if you look at this, this is, this is only about 60 miles, this whole attack route. So, so and this, this happened over a period of, of uh, months. And where, where, where we start out in this book, they're right on the other side of the Jericho. So you've got, um, anyway, what you've got is you've got, uh, they're right about here when, we, when we're reading in this book. They're, they're in Shittim which is right about here. This is the Jordan River that runs from the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Chinnereth, or Kinnereth, and it comes down and goes into the Dead Sea. And so they're right about here, and they're about 10 miles away now from the city of Jericho. They're going to have to cross this river to get into Jericho, which is the first city that they're going to attack. They've already attacked this side. They've killed the two kings that reside on this side, on, on the east side of the Jordan. They've already attacked those two, Sion and Og, which we'll see in this chapter. And, and uh, already there's land that's been taken with, with uh, um, uh, Reuben, Gad, and a half-tribe of Manasseh. So Reuben, Gad, and a half-tribe of Manasseh already took and claimed this territory by the time this book opens. And, and now you're going to have the other half of the, of the tribe of Manasseh, which was a huge tribe. He was a descendant of Joseph. He's going to get some land on this side, and then the, the, this land is going to be parceled up. 
So, but already this side has been conquered. They came up from Egypt, which is, is down here. They came up, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, which is down here. And then they came up through Moab, up here into the land. And then they attacked two kings on this side, secured this side. And now they're going to go into the land, into the east, in, into the western side of, uh, of, of, of the Jordan. And this is where Israel is today. So if you were to look at Israel today, Israel today runs from right about here, from Akko, right about here. Israel will run from right about this point all the way down. And uh, then it, it comes down to a very narrow point, And it's surrounded. And so you have Saudi Arabia at, on, on one side of that point. You have Egypt on the other side of that point. And, and everything to the right, everything on the, on the east side of this, this uh, Jordan River right now belongs to the nation of Jordan. And the Jordan River is what separates the two. And the, sea of, uh, the, the Dead Sea and the, the Sea of Chenereth or the, the Sea of Galilee separates the two. And uh, uh, so, so, so this belongs to, to Jordan. And now, now you'll have other areas up here, the Golan Heights, which are up here, which, which belong to Israel as well. And uh, so, so that's about where we are. All right, so let's start reading in, in uh, verse 1 of Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua the son of Nun sent two men as spies secretly from Shittim, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went out and they came to the house of the harlot whose name was Rahab. So what they did is they left Shittim and they just crossed the river about 10 miles away to Jericho, but they were to spy out part of the land, but particularly Jericho, because that's the first city they're going to attack. So when they came into the house of a harlot whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there, and was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men from the sons of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent word to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman who had taken the two men had hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them in the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued them on the road to the Jordan, to the fords, and as soon as those who were pursuing them had gone, they shut the gate. So, Rahab, the, these men are checking out the city. They go into the city, and then they slip into a house of, uh, uh, of, of, a, of a harlot. So, they go into a brothel or an inn that's run by, by Rahab, and uh, because men would not be suspected if they go into a, 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 a brothel like that. Because, because these men were wandering in and, and maybe people were beginning to look at them because already word is getting back to the king that there's spies here. Because they're going to be on the lookout because remember, just 10 miles away, just across the Jordan, here's, here's Jericho, just across the Jordan, just 10 miles away, there are 2 million people. 2 million people just 10 miles away. That's a lot of people. That's like half the size of the city of Houston. There are two million people that are spread out in this area. And uh, um, so they well know about these people that are coming and they well suspect that they're going to be coming. And so 
Generally, what you do is you have spies come in. So they were on their guard. And the spies were found out. And the king sends to Rahab. Now, how does the king know Rahab? There is a lot of Jewish writing that actually Rahab serviced the king as well and many of the dignitaries of that city. And so, so uh, uh, prostitutes a lot of times will know a lot of information because when a man might, might spend a night with a prostitute, a man will begin to speak. And uh, uh, she knows a lot about what's going on. And, and so she had taken them. So the king sent word. And it says in verse 4, But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they are from. And it came about when it was time to shut the gate that the men went out. And I do not know where they went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. So what did she do? She lied. She told a lie. She said, I don't know where they were from. And now the Bible, this chapter, makes no moral judgment call on her lie. But clearly she told a lie. And in fact, there is, there is a description of this in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, it lists Rahab as one of the people of great faith. The he- Hebrews chapter 11 is listing the people in the Old Testament who had great faith. And Rahab is among them. It says by he- in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So, in fact, the New Testament deems what she did in telling a lie as an act of faith. It mentions her again in, in, the, in uh, uh, the epistle of James, the next book over, James chapter 2, verse 25, it mentions her again. And it says in verse 25 of James chapter 2, In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So the New Testament speaks of her in two ways. Never speaks of her lie being something immoral. It speaks of it as being an act of faith and a justification by, an, by a work that was done. In Deuteronomy chapter 20, In Deuteronomy chapter 20, it clearly tells us what should have been done with everybody in that land. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 16, here's the order of what they were supposed to do with everyone who lived on the east side of the Jordan River, the the land that had been given to them. I'm sorry, on the west side of the Jordan River. Here's what was supposed to be done. Only in the cities of these people that the Lord your God is giving you you as an inheritance, you shall not leave alive anything that breathes but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittite, the Amorite, the Canaanite, and, and Rahab was a Canaanite, and the Perizzite, the Hivite, the Jebusite, as the Lord your God has commanded you. So they were under commandment to kill everybody on this side. That's what they were commanded to do. And it says in verse 18, so that they may not teach you to do according to all their detestable things which they have done for their gods so that you would sin against the Lord your God. They, had, they would offer up their children as, as, as uh, sacrifices and sacrifice their children to the Lord. We're actually uh, uh, killing them and burning them in the fire. And many things like this, they said God instructed them to utterly destroy them. So she was under the curse but she was delivered from that curse. And now you're going to see the, the faith of a Gentile in this Jewish nation. It's really quite remarkable. So turn back to Joshua, to Joshua chapter 2. 
And so these guards come. They say, turn over these men that are in your house. She says, oh my goodness, they've already left. And uh, they, just, they just went out. But she had already hidden them. It says she had already put them up on the roof and hidden them among the flax that were drying on the roof. And uh, so it says, it says, but go, hurry up and chase them. They're going to go back across the Jordan, chase them. You'll overtake them because they're on foot. Presumably these guys can ride on camels or something <clears throat> and go chase them as they go back to the Jordan. So, so they're at Jericho there. And if you look at this scale, so, so this is about this distance. So it's somewhere about four or five miles from Jericho to the Jordan River. Now, I've been in that territory. It's foreboding. I mean, it's, it's desert-like. It's not easy. It's not easy terrain to, to go over. It's sandy, so it's, you know, when you're walking on sand that, 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 that your, your feet don't get good traction. And so they were trying to overtake them before they got across the Jordan, before they got too close to the two million people that are waiting for them. These men went to overtake them. And so that these men are now searching between Jericho and the Jordan River for the, these two spies. It says in verse 8, Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof. So already the guards have gone looking for them. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings uh, uh, of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og whom you utterly destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. This is amazing what she says. Let's go back through it. So she goes up to them and she begins to talk with them. She says, she, she's talking with them on the roof of her home. And she says, I know that the Lord your God has given you the land. How does she know this? God had communicated this to Moses in the wilderness saying, I've given you this land. God communicated this to Abraham saying, I've given you the land. And now 400 years later, Moses is wandering in the wilderness and he says, Moses, I've given you guys this land. How does she know that those 2 million people that had been wandering in the wilderness, and it was around 2 million people that had come out of Egypt, and that generation died, but they were still having lots of kids and more kids coming in. It's estimated around 2 million people. This is fascinating how 2 million people, a group the city, a group the size of half the people in Houston. This is huge. 2 million people is larger than most cities in the United States today. This is a huge amount of people. How did they eat? Well, it says that manna came down. God fed them where manna came down. Because think of the resources that are needed. When you're in that desert, I'm telling you, you might find a lizard or a snake or something, and, and, and they couldn't eat those anyway because those weren't under the, the, under the law. They couldn't eat lizards and snakes. But if there was any jackal or something, I'm telling you, it was history with two million people chasing that thing. I mean, anything that walked was just, just wouldn't survive. But God fed them by dropping manna from heaven. And you say, well, what about the water? And they've done estimates. You would need like 10 train car loads of water 
train cars, ten trains of many train cars of water to, to water that many people. You'd, you'd need about three or four liters of water per person per day just to survive, let alone all the ceremonial washings and all the things they had to do. Where did they get the water? Well, it says that, that actually we have this image that they were wandering through the wilderness continuously, and that's not the case. If you read through it, they would stay fixed in a certain place for a long period of time, for a period of years before God would move them out, number one. Number two, that... that uh, uh, there is, there's a lot of Jewish tradition that says there was a rock which followed them. And this is actually mentioned in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4. It uses Christ as the analogy of the rock that was following them. So Christ is the analogy that Paul is using. So Paul is very well aware of this Jewish tradition, which is not listed in our Old Testament, but it's, it's a long-standing Jewish tradition. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, it says... We'll start reading at verse 2. And they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and they all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them and the rock was Christ. So you see, Christ is the analogy that Paul is using. What is the actual thing to which he is analogizing Christ? So it is... It is in Jewish tradition, that there was a flint rock which rolled and followed them, and it was that rock which Moses struck, and that rock would follow them. And you can see these, these ancient uh, Jewish, Jewish paintings that show this rock, and they would dig, dig 12 channels coming out, each channel filling, filling uh, 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 going out to the 12 different tribes that would come to get their water, and it says the water gushed out, the scriptures say, when Moses struck the, rock, the water gushed out, because you'd need gushing water to sustain that many people. And so we don't know exactly how the water came to them. We, do, we, we know it in some places it talks that there were springs of water. Other places there was rock that Moses would strike and the water would gush out. The Jewish tradition is actually the rock followed them. And that Jewish tradition is made mention of here in the New Testament when he makes reference to the rock following them. So, I don't know if any of you have ever thought about the technical part of sustaining two million people in a desert, but I've thought about that. And I thought about it when I first went to Ben-Gurion University, which is, uh, which is, Beersheba is here, way down in the desert, and about 30 miles south of Beersheba is the, is the, uh, where the, where they have the, uh, research that goes on on water and on solar in Israel. And I've gone down to that facility several times. And you go and you look out and you're like, wow, if, if I got lost out there for an hour, I'd be dead. It is just so foreboding. The land is not just a, you know, like the Saudi Arabian view of a desert where it's just sand and kind of rolling sand dunes. It's not like that. It is just cliffs going down and then across in very, very irregular territory and just scary to have to be out in, in, in an area like that. And uh, anyway, so, so they, had to be, they had to be sustained and God sustained them. There's those two mentions in the New Testament about what Rahab did. It never says she told a lie, but she clearly told a lie. But it says it was an act of faith and justified by works. So I want to look at another set of people who lied. Look at Exodus, 
Exodus chapter 1. The book of Exodus chapter 1. And we're going to start reading at verse 15. Exodus chapter 1 verse 15. And this is concerning the two midwives for the Hebrews when they were in Egypt as slaves. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. So these are women who helped to deliver children. One of whom was named uh, Shifra and the other was named Pua. And he said, when you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. So the Jew, so this was the first act of genocide toward the Hebrew nation, toward the Jews. The Jews, there have been several proclamations of genocide upon the Jews to wipe them off the face of this earth. This was the first one. It was by Pharaoh. Pharaoh wanted all the male children killed. You kill all the male children, that is an act of genocide. You wipe out a nation within a generation. No male children, you wipe them out. And so he told the midwives to kill them. That was the instruction to the midwives by the king. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this thing and let the boys live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and they give birth before the midwife can get, there, get to them. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. Because the midwives feared God, he established households for them. Well, they lied, and God blessed them for lying. These are two examples in scriptures where they lied and they were blessed for a lie. And in both cases, it was for the protection of human life, the immediate protection of human life. Now, some would say lying is bad always and, and tour your teaching situational ethics. What I see in scripture, I'm just calling it like I see it. There are two occasions where lies were justified and spoken of as a blessing, as an act of faith, a justification by works, and, and, and uh, uh, God blessed their household because of it, and that's when there was immediate human life on the line. And I'll tell you, if somebody broke into my home, and it was clear to me that they were going to rape my, my daughters, say, and they said, are there any women in here? I'd say, no. There's no women here, all right? I am willing to stand before my Lord and protect my daughters from being raped by lying to a man who's going to come into my home and obviously hurt them. And I would do the same for all of you women in here. I would do the same for you. I would protect you in that way. When you are protecting human life, there are two instances for the protection of human life. And they lied and they were, they, they were justified. So you take that and you do with it as you will. But it was for the protection of human life. God blessed those midwives and, they, midwives and they clearly lied about this. They didn't just say, oh, well, you know. No, they said, uh, you know, they, these are strong women. I mean, the boys are born before we get there. What are we going to do? No, they didn't say that. They just, they, they just, they just lied about this. And, and, then, and then, uh, then it says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile. And every daughter, you are to keep alive. So what he did is he said, 
He told his own people, if you see a little baby boy among the Jews, throw him into the Nile and let him drown. What you see is, is, this is, is this going to be one of those examples of blessing for blessing and curse for curse in kind. Curse for curse in kind. What happens is there's ten plagues that come upon Egypt. What happens in, one of the, in the last plague? The last plague is God kills every firstborn male in the nation of Egypt. You kill my children, you kill my sons, I will kill your sons. And then when they are going out of Egypt, God drowns the entire Egyptian army in the Red Sea. All of them drown. You kill my sons by drowning, I will kill your sons by drowning. Curse for curse in kind. You come against Jews, you're going to get curse for curse in kind. The Bible is clear on that. I've taught before on that. But in any case, this is what you see. So, and then also in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, Rahab is mentioned in the genealogies, how she is well within the line of the genealogies of Jesus. So, for the protection of human life. And where do you see where it's okay to disobey government? It's not in your taxes. So, if you say, I don't like paying taxes, I'm a Christian, I don't have to pay. You're going to go to jail. All right? So, so, and you deserve to go to jail for that. But in the cases, in the case of this, and this is the only examples that I can see in Scripture for civil disobedience, it is one for the protection of human life. If the government tells you to do something that's going to kill somebody, you don't do it. Secondly, it's to preach the gospel. They were, they were told not to preach and they continued to preach the gospel. And the third occasion was in accepting of the Lord. If somebody should preach and you say, well, the government says we can't become a Christian, you become a Christian anyway. Those are the only three instances that there are examples in the scripture for civil disobedience. The protection of human life, immediate human life, the protection of, uh, 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 the, for the preaching of the gospel and for acceptance of the Lord. Those are the three examples of civil disobedience. Okay, so let's look back in Joshua chapter 2 because it is amazing what she starts saying here. So she says, I know that the Lord is giving you this land. And that's in verse 8, in verse 9. I know that the Lord is giving you this land. So the Lord was speaking to her. Word got back. If you have two million people wandering through the desert, they're going to contact other people once in a while. And these people are going to say, what are you guys doing wandering here for 40 years in the desert? God's given us that land over there. And they say, well, you got two million people, just take it. No, God said we can't take it now because of our disobedience. We've got to wander here 40 years. So rumors gotten back. Word has gotten back to people in the land. Clearly, she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. Two million people can't keep a secret. And that the terror of you has fallen on us and the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. So, any city, you look at any of these cities, nowhere close to two million people. These are little cities. Nowhere close to two million people. The only city that, was, that, that really had that number of people, over a million people, was the city of Babylon, way, way out in, 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 in uh, what is current day Iraq. Way out over here. So that's far away, but, but no, no place, and that, that was actually 500 years after that. But in any case, there's no city close to that size. These are little cities, maybe 100,000 people at the most. And, and you've got 2 million people walking around. Remember, any animals, I mean, anything in their path is destroyed. And, and uh, uh, the terror was just upon these people, knowing that these people said, that is our land. And then she says, 
In verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord, we have heard, not that she heard the revelation from God, but we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. So on on the east side of the Jordan, they destroyed Sion and Og. That's the last act that they just did. Forty years earlier, they had come out of Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and went into the wilderness. She said, we know the beginning of when you went into the wilderness, when you left Egypt, and the last thing you did. We know the two bookends. We know everything you did from start to finish. It's not just that we know the beginning and the end. We know everything in between, too. We know all the places you went. Two million people. There's a, there's a lot of trade routes going on and people traveling, going back and forth. Lots of information. You know, two million people back in that desert over there I saw going through. I mean, lots of things going on at the, at the local pub. You know, the discussions. They knew everything that had gone on. All the different people that they had conquered. She says, we know all of this and it's caused our hearts to melt away. This is exactly what the spies had intended to do. Was to learn, had the people been demoralized? And she says exactly that in verse 11. When we heard it, our hearts melted and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and earth beneath. She says there was no courage left. I mean, if if you know an army is coming to attack your home, it's not like, oh, I'm going to get really brave. I'm going to fight. I mean, it's like, I mean, there's no hope. I got an army coming to attack my home and there's only six of us. You lose heart. This is exactly what Joshua had sent them in to find out. These men were not ready to fight them. There was no fight left in them. They had heard all about this. This is exactly what they came to hear, that the people had been demoralized. When you look in the classical Jewish writings, what they write about this is is that they, they say that the men couldn't even have sex anymore. They were so demoralized. I mean, it's quite vivid what it talks about. It says that they were so demoralized, so beside themselves. And he says, he says, so, so this is what was happening. She knew everything. The people of this entire region. It wasn't a surprise to them that these people were coming. Two million people don't walk up on you by surprise. The word is out. They're coming into this land. They intend to take this land. And this is exactly the word that was coming. And what we're going to see is one woman and her family are going to get saved out of this thing, out of this mess. This one woman and her family are going to get saved out of this because of an act of faith, because of an act of standing for the Lord. If we will take a stand for the Lord, He will watch over our lives. It doesn't mean that everything good will happen in our lives. What it means is that He will watch over us. There is great security in in walking with the Lord. This is just amazing what we're going to see here. And the word that's going to come. And the deal that she makes with them. She makes a covenant with them. There's a very special word for covenant. And she's going to call upon them to make this very special covenant deal with her family. She says, I've spared you. Spare me. So if, if you read on, so, so we see what's coming. In verse 12. Now therefore, please swear to me by the Lord... And this word, Lord, she's using the word Jehovah. She is using the very word for them as the covenant-keeping God. Swear to me by your covenant-keeping God, since I have dealt 
kindly with you, that you will also deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. This pledge of truth is something that is very firm within the Jewish nation. God had given the same word, the same pledge God had given to them. She's saying, I want it from you. And spare my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters with all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. So the men said to her, our life for yours if you do not tell this business of ours. And it shall come about when the Lord gives us the land that we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. And these men end up keeping that commitment. But what she does, she says, I want you to not just spare me, I want you to spare my entire father's house, my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them. So it wasn't just her and their house. I mean, who knows how many brothers and sisters she had. Say, ten. And then of that ten, each one of them is probably married with kids. So you might have had a hundred people that she's asking for security for. We don't know, but it's certainly more than just her. This is something else that we can call upon. We can ask God's blessing and protection upon our families. You call upon the Lord and you cry out for your family. If your parents are unsaved, cry out for them. If your brothers and your sisters are unsaved, cry out for them. Just as Rahab is crying out for the protection, not just of her, but also for her families. Cry out for your family, for their protection, for their good. Intercede for them. And if you are the leader of the home, you are obliged to do this. But Rahab wasn't the leader of this home. She said, of my father's house, I am claiming my entire father's household. That's my brothers, my sisters, and all who belong to them. Their wives, their husbands, and all their kids. That's what I want. And they said, you got it. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word, for the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, for these young people that you would give them a passion for praying for their families, for praying for their conversion of their families. Father, I pray that you so work in their lives that they would take that step of praying for their families, that they would pray for the brothers, for the sisters, that they would pray for their children for protection upon them. Lord, I pray that You'd give them a heart to cry out for the salvation of their families. And Lord, even as I say this, I say, Lord, remember my father. Remember my brother and my sister. Draw them to Jesus, I pray. Thank You, Lord, for saving my mother's soul. Now draw my father, my brother, and my sister. And Father, I pray the same for these people here. For these young people, they, they would be crying out for their families. And Father, for those here who do not know You, who have never accepted Jesus in their hearts, Lord, I pray for them that at the hearing of the Gospel that Jesus Christ has given His life for them, that they would be saved. That they would say this very day, Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner and come into my life. Forgive me, I pray. And Lord, I thank You and I praise You for your goodness and your kindness toward us. Glory be to your name. Amen.